0: Hello and welcome to the St Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Rick Boddy. Today we're going to be talking about one of my greatest passions in life, clinical decision rules for acute coronary syndromes. And I'm very privileged to be joined by someone else who shares the same passion, Barbara Backus of the Heart Score. Hello, Barbara. Hi, Rick. Nice to be here with you. It's great to have you on the podcast. What we're going to talk about is clinical decision rules for acute coronary syndromes. There are loads of them out there, Barbara, aren't there?
1: Well, it all started with Timmy and Grace, who are quite famous, but they were actually developed for acute coronary syndrome and not only for chest pain. And when we look at the broader group of patients, the chest pain patient at the emergency department, we have many, many more scores who are good for for that group. Look at the heart score, the max score. We have ADEPT, which incorporates Timmy. EDEX, Trust, Vancouver, there are many out of them.
0: So I guess what would be useful is to go through how each decision rule is developed. You mentioned things like Timmy and the ADAPT protocol, the GRACE score. Those are rules that were developed in different populations for patients with confirmed ACS and were developed really to risk stratify those patients. But they weren't derived specifically for use in the undifferentiated emergency department population. If we wanted to derive a Bespoke rule? How would we go about that, Barbara? What are the different approaches?
1: Well, there are many ways. Ways, Rick. Uh, when you look at the TIMI score, that was derived by regression analysis on huge groups of patients with confirmed acute coronary syndrome. Others, like the sex score, were developed just by looking at specific criteria of patients with an acute myocardial infarction and they collected those data and put it into a decision rule. When we look at the hard score, it was actually developed in a very specific way. Jacob Six, who is a cardiologist already for 20 years in the Netherlands, was thinking about a score for chest pain patients at the emergency department. And he had five elements, namely history, EKG, risk factors, age, and troponin, and he didn't really know how to put those five criteria into a scoring system. But he knew very well that he wanted to bring in the gray area, which is so specific for chest pain or uh, medicine in general. Uh, medicine isn't black and white and people don't always have very specific chest pain, for example. Analog to the Epgar score for newborns, he gave every element a scoring of 0, 1 and two. So the clinician is able to choose a one if he thinks that there's doubt for this element. And actually, Heart was made on the kitchen table in Jacob's house. We were just talking about these elements, talking about that grey area, zero, one and two points. And before we know, we had history, EKG, age, risk factors and troponin as the five key elements of
0: the heart score. Wow, I can only imagine what it was like in that room when you realised that you'd spelt out heart.
1: Actually, Rick, I was thinking for at least two months that I must have spelled it wrong because it couldn't be that you spelled hard in this way and it was really hard and it was our score and that was our beginning point.
0: Wow, when you realised that you'd spelled out heart, it must have been a real eureka moment. So what you've explained very nicely is that the heart score was developed by intuition or expert knowledge. And that is one approach to developing a decision rule. Another approach is to use statistical techniques, of course. And that's what we did when we developed the MAX rule. It's also how some very well-known rules like the Ottawa-Ankle rule have been derived, for example. Now, there are loads of statistical techniques that we could use to derive a decision rule. Some of them are very complicated. But to keep things pretty simple, two of the most common methods are recursive partitioning, which forms a decision tree and that's how things like the Ottawa-Ankle rule were derived, and regression techniques. So that's how we developed the MAX rule, and that's how the EDAX score from Martin Fan and Louise Cullen were developed, along with things like the WELLS scores for PE and DVT that people will be very familiar with. When we use those techniques... There's actually quite a long process to go through, so we might start by running a systematic review to find out which factors we might be interested in looking at. We'd run univariate analyses to find out which factors by themselves make the diagnosis of ACS a bit more likely or a bit less likely. We might then assess the inter-observer reliability of those different factors and chuck out the variables that don't have good enough reliability And then we'd enter everything into a multivariate analysis and the rule rules take shape. So those are the two approaches that we might take to developing decision rules, the intuition approach and the statistical technique. But Barbara, do you think that one approach is better than the other and how would we know?
1: Well, Rick, it's very nice that you talk about this subject because you are right that you have different ways to develop a risk score. And the nice thing is that with the hard score, we actually did both. Um, We developed the hard score on intuition and we saw in all our validation studies that with these simple elements, the hard score was already very good in discriminating patients with low, intermediate or high risk for acute coronary syndrome. But then after our four validation studies, we said, well, how good would the hard score be if you would have done logistic regression analysis? We went back to our data set of our prospective study and we did logistic regression analysis on that data set. We made an adjusted hard score based on this logistic regression analysis. And in the end, we saw that the calibration and discrimination of this adjusted hard score wasn't so much better than uh, the hard score based on its simplicity and intuition. We end up with the same result and almost the same uh, diagnostic accuracy for patients with chest pain.
0: Thank you for sharing that with us, Barbara. That really is an interesting finding that even when you use statistical techniques, the diagnostic performance of the rule didn't improve so much. And I guess that the bottom line is that if a decision rule works, it doesn't really matter how it was derived so long as it does really work. Isn't that right? It is, Rick, it is. So the next step is really to find out how well decision rule really does work and we can't trust the initial or derivation studies so much because they tend to overestimate how well any decision rule will perform and that means that we've got to validate the decision rule before we use it. How do we go about validating a decision rule, Barbara?
1: There are several ways how to validate a score one key point is that you do not only validate it in your own hospital and in your own population but you need to validate your score in several settings and show to the audience that its accuracy is comparable in each of these studies
0: yeah so that's a really important point if you can show that a decision rule still has good accuracy in lots of very different patient populations then it's much more likely that the findings can be generalized to other groups of patients. But it's also important to have local data about how the decision rule performs and that can sometimes be quite straightforward to get actually. We tend to run simple cohort studies and they can be done quite easily even away from large academic centres but it's very good to have if you're thinking about implementing a decision rule in your practice.
1: Well, we're quite sure that the hard score works because we've seen how persistent its results are in each of the different internal and external validation studies. Um, But we developed an implementation study which just finished inclusion and we are about to Uh, run our analysis on this cohort and in this implementation study we try to look at the effect of implementing the hard score in daily practice in nine different hospitals and we want to have a look on how the hard score changes your way of dealing with chest pain patients in daily clinical practice.
0: So this is going to give us some really important evidence about how the heart score works in practice and it's a really good thing to do to run an interventional trial comparing use of a decision rule to standard care for example. In a validation study that's observational the best we can do is look at efficacy really, study the accuracy of a decision rule in theory but in an interventional study we see what actually happens when we treat patients using the decision rule. And that's what you're doing in this stepped wedge design study. But there's an interesting concept there. One way of running an interventional trial like this would be to randomize individual patients to get care guided by the decision rule or standard care. That's not what you're doing, is it? It's something called the step wedge design. How does that work? Well, the good
1: thing, Rick, with a step wedge design, each month another hospital starts using the hardcore, while the other... Five or six or seven hospitals still use usual care or daily practice as they have done before. So, in every step and each month, you will have your own controls. While you have your group um, uh, who started with the hard score already, and your group with uh, who implemented the hard score.
0: Yes, yeah, so this is a really interesting way of designing a trial for. Uh, evaluation of a decision rule if you did the individual randomization the problem is one it's really hard to do to get people to randomize individual patients and two you get what's called contamination so the doctors get to know that the decision rule uh, is being used how to use it and that certain patients could go home and some of the patients in the control group might be treated according to the decision rule even though they're not supposed to be and that's called contamination. An alternative to get around that is to use a cluster design, so you randomise hospitals to use the decision rule, or not. That's what they did in the ESCAPE trial uh, and the rat Pack trial of chest pain units and point of care testing some years ago. Now those were negative trials, and it might be because hospitals are very different, and they have different practices, so actually when you look at an early rule strategy, uh, the... Good effects of the early rule strategy are drowned out by the heterogeneities between the hospitals. And what you've done, Barbara, in the step wedge design is you've tried to get rid of that by randomising hospitals to implement the heart score at different dates. So everybody implements the heart score. you just randomised to start at a different time. And then each hospital is essentially its own control, which is a very clever way of designing a randomised controlled trial. So we look forward to seeing the results of the randomised control trial of the step wedge cluster randomised control trial of the heart score. And those will be out later this year, right?
1: They are, they are.
0: You can hear it at USIM twenty fifteen, we hope.
1: I hope to have the results by then, definitely.
0: It will <laughs> it will be in October, eleventh to the fourteenth in Torino, Italy. And both of us will be presenting and hopefully you'll be able to hear those latest results from, the, from Barbara's trial. I guess you don't always have to have a randomised controlled trial, but it is nice to see how the rule is working in practice. Now, that leads us on really to talk about which one do you choose? So these are the steps in developing a decision rule, derivation, validation and evaluation of how it works in practice. But then at the end of the day, you've got to choose which decision rule to go with. And there's not just one, there's the max rule, there's the heart score, there's the EDAX score, there's loads of others. How do you choose? What do you suggest, Barbara? Difficult question, Rick. I think
1: part of your choice is also how comfortable you feel with that specific score. And how you think about the score can be based on the results you read in literature and it can also be based on your own experience with that scoring system. But when you look at the literature, I think that we have to take several aspects of each scoring system into account. How simple is the score that, you, that you're going to use? How good is the accuracy of this scoring system? Uh, what is the sensitivity and negative predictive value how is its specificity and positive predictive value and do i need to add extra biomarkers to my laboratory before i can use this scoring system
0: yeah that's a really important point that's one of the big barriers that we've picked up with the max rule, for example because that incorporates heart type fatty acid binding protein anyone who's listening to this podcast might well have uh, been to EM Lit of Note, Ryan Radecki's awesome blog where he called the Max Rule the unusable Manchester chest pain instrument because it uh, used a heart type fatty acid binding protein assay. And that is an important consideration. It's one that we've listened to and we've developed a troponin only Max Rule. You'll hopefully hear more about in the near future. The laboratories might have some concerns about implementing a new assay. You've got to think about those kind of things. And you've got to think about the troponin assay that they might use as well. Do you need high sensitivity troponin? Does that compare with what your lab has? Those things are very important. In terms of simplicity, you might also need to think about whether you prefer to use something that you could put on a piece of paper, like heart or edax, or whether you prefer to use a computer model. So that's the Max rule, for example. You'd need to go to a computer, uh, input your data, and it will come out with an estimated probability of major adverse cardiac events. There may be some relative advantages and disadvantages of the two approaches, and ultimately the choice is a local one, I would say. But what we're saying, I guess, is that there's not just room for one decision rule in the whole of the world. There could be several options that are acceptably accurate and the choice can be a local one. Isn't that right?
1: Definitely right, Rick. Like you said earlier, uh, local populations differ from other populations in the rest of the world. So it could even be that one decision rule works better in, for example, Southeast Asia, while the other one works better in the USA, uh, the UK or the Netherlands. So there's not one scoring system that's the best for the whole world and for everyone.
0: Absolutely. And it's really interesting to see the things that are attractive to different countries. So the rule, for example, is something that we're going to validate in many of the developed countries of the world. But we approached uh, Anne Creighton in Fiji about doing some work around the diagnosis of acute coronary syndromes. And what was most attractive to them in a kind of developing country was to validates a much simpler strategy that we published in the emergency medicine journal where we combine troponin ECG and clinician gestalt or clinical judgment for ACS. It's a very simple strategy you don't need a computer and it suits the developing world environment so it's horses for courses I guess. Finally one last thing that I think we should quickly touch on. Some people believe that you can't have a decision rule for acute coronary syndromes. I've heard it said that you can have a decision rule for an ankle fracture, because that's simple. It's an ankle fracture. You've either fractured it or you've not. Acute coronary syndromes are much more complex. You couldn't possibly have a decision rule for ACS. What do you think, Barbara? Is there any truth in that?
1: Well, the group of chest pain patients is a difficult one. I think that many doctors struggle with these chest pain patients. And of course, the risk of... ACS is a very different one than uh, the risk of an ankle fracture because an acute coronary syndrome could end in myocardial infarction, VT or VF or even in death. So the group of chest pain patients is definitely a difficult one. But I think it's not impossible to have a scoring system that works well in this population.
0: I'd like to finish really by... Quoting David Sackett on that note, because David Sackett told us what evidence-based medicine is all about. One of the criticisms of decision rules for chest pain is it reduces us to using checkbox medicine and gets rid of our clinical judgment. Well, that goes against what David Sackett said, evidence-based medicine should be all about. He defined evidence-based medicine as the conscientious, explicit, and judicious use of current best evidence. In making decisions about the care of the individual patient, it means integrating individual clinical expertise with the best available external clinical evidence. That last sentence is really important. It's about integrating your expertise with the best available evidence. So medicine would never be reduced to a checkbox. You still retain your clinical judgment. The human doctor is still in control. The decision rule is a tool to help you.
1: Rick, I always use that exact same sentence when I end my presentations at a conference. The hard score or any other score can never replace our clinical thinking and our clinical reasoning.
0: Absolutely. So let's wrap up here. Ultimately, clinical decision rules are there to help us as clinicians and they're there as companions to our clinical judgment. I hope you've enjoyed listening to our podcast. Thanks very much indeed, Barbara, for joining us at St Emlyn.
1: Thank you, Rick, for the opportunity to uh, talk with you.
0: See you next time.
1: Bye.